just to comment why I chose that reading, Ruth taught us last week about this great character Barnabas. And I wanted this passage because it beautifully illustrates how God messes up our plans. Just when you think you've got everything sorted, you've told God what's going to happen, and uh, you think you've come to a kind of bargained agreement, uh, all sorts of things start to change. And that's how the church moved out into its messy mission. And uh, so we're just going to reflect with you some of the messy thoughts that our trip abroad has been. I'm going to pray, I'm going to start off, hand over to Sue, and then back to me. So let's be quiet for a moment. Living God, we thank you for the sense of being part of a worldwide family. We thank you that we can learn so much from others who live out their Christian faith in very different settings to ours. And we pray that as Sue and I testify to some of the things we've seen and felt in Uganda and through this year, Lord, you would speak to all of us. And you would help us to have that chink of openness that we're prepared to live life more messily as a church and as individuals as we seek first the kingdom of God. Amen. Right, I've just noticed I haven't got the thing here, so I better just get this thing round here. If you can just put on the slides, if you will, please, Mark. Yep, great. Right, when I was a student, I fancied the idea of being a missionary in Africa. It wouldn't go away. And I was ordained uh, by the time that I put it to the test and felt that God clearly said, it's not for you, sunshine. Your role is in the UK or Europe. You're not being called to overseas. I did a lot of travelling in the Royal Royal Air Force all over the world. But actually was never even posted overseas. I only visited places. Then at one point, toward the end of my first parish where I was a vicar, I tested again as to whether that was right. And God said very clearly, no. And a friend of mine says, your particular calling is to the Royal Air Force. He said, whatever that missionary calling was about, that's God's call on your life. I really struggled with that. And for me, uh, this year has been quite significant. In terms of going early on in the year to Malaysia, Singapore, uh, and Indonesia, uh, certainly Singapore blew me away at just what it is when a church empowered by the Holy Spirit, frankly, can do nothing but God's mission. Forty years on from a near revival there, they are still a place with a deeply missionary heart. So you look at them, and you look at an Anglican church out there, and you think, it probably looks a bit like one out here, actually, until you hear their heart, and they have a passion for mission. And when I went with Sue to Uganda as part of a team, this is my biggest exposure to the world church proper by actually being there. And it's not been life-changing, but it's certainly made me look at life back here differently. And I just kind of feel that we need to stop sweating the small stuff sometimes. We're different to Africa. We're different to Singapore. It's no good trying to ape them. But we do sometimes have to see when others live church and mission and discipleship simply, 
It's worth looking at. It's worth thinking about and stripping down what we're about. So uh, here's the map of Uganda, a beautiful country, a country that actually is not one that's in constant drought or anything like that. It's very green. There is um, jungle stroke, vast forest. We went to a national park. Uh, but what you notice when you see people there, Steve here may own two fields. But he does absolutely nothing with them. He might throw a few carrots in. Instead, Steve and Carol go and work for Sid. They get paltry little wages and do nothing. And they see, they don't see what's staring them in the face. So they are poor, but the prospect of being well-fed and having a good income is ever-present. And the project that we as a parish have engaged in with Tear Fund and New Wine has basically been transformational. Sue will tell you about somebody who some of you have met before later on. So Uganda is a place with poverty, but it's a different kind of poverty. It's not drought. And what they're learning over there about making the best of the resources that God's given them is, I think, a great thought for us. Let's not worry about what we haven't got. <laughs> let's worry about, or not worry about, let's use what God has given us. I think that's very powerful. This was the happy bunch that we went with. And as you can see, a mix of ages. Uh, there were a few vicars thrown in there, but most of them, thankfully, were not. Uh, and uh, the young guy on this end, uh, my end here, let me just show him, uh, he's a vicar's son uh, and a non-believer. He's a great guy. He works in Costa. He's kind of, his mum and dad are a huge embarrassment, so he's given up on church. But he wanted to go on this trip. And though, I'm not going to tell you he became a Christian, because he hasn't. But I think God opened his eyes. And as we think, and as you talk to John about whether you're going to go on this trip, quite amazing to take a young person along who actually doesn't know Jesus. Because there's something authentic about seeing what God is doing out there and sharing in the life of the church, especially when it's not your dad's church. Quite powerful, great guy. Uh, so we were all there for a while. You recognize Nadine, and she, visit, she was on that trip. She won't be on them all. And I've supported uh, the Mission Aviation Fellowship for years. So for me, the chance to have a flight when we arrived uh, up to Soroti was great in one of these aircrafts. They usually carry missionaries around, but occasionally non-Christians. who are always a bit troubled when the pilot prays at the start of the journey. <laughs> Uh, but it's a, a really good time. And this was the airport we went from, and uh, quite small, and the aircraft is quite small, but a great way of picking up. If you go, it will give you a good understanding of the land that you will see. And if you do go, you'll go on a longer journey, uh, probably two journeys, uh, in a small aircraft. Really quite something. Uh, I'm going to hand over to Sue now, and just to say that one of the things that really struck me, and actually I was gutted by this, was what I saw happening to women there. Sometimes by their menfolk, sometimes just the way they were undervalued in all kinds of subtle ways in society. And there's a transformation that happens through the project we've been involved in, which changes life for women. Sue. Uh, that picture comes from the first place we visited, which is called Ogongora. 
it was an eye-opener. It was uh, a, a place where, it, as we drove, we drove on uh, sort of roads that became tracks that became, you thought, that's not anything for a car. It was a footpath with potholes, and you just got further and further. And then suddenly there was some huts, grass such huts, and one or two sort of built buildings, you know, sort of like prefabby things, which was their local uh, school, I think. They'd all gathered to meet the Muzungus, which is the whites. And the uh, men were all on one area, on chairs, and the women were on the dirt. And that absolutely symbolised the way in which they seemed to be regarding each other. Uh, we asked the women, what is your day like from dawn until dawn? And one by one they answered, and it was lives of absolute hardship, getting up you know, at five in the morning, going out to what they called their garden, which was where they'd planted one or two things simply to sort of feed the family a bit. Then, um, you know, going to fetch water or sending the children to fetch water. The, the, the borehole was a couple of miles away. Um, it was on somebody else's land. And recently there'd been some sort of tribal disturbances and someone, um, a stepson, had murdered his stepmother who came from this village and therefore the men of that village came in and burnt the whole of where we were. The local uh, sort of government people had come in with the church and done some rebuilding. And because of that, it's almost like they had an in to the community. They were worth listening to because at a point of immediate need, they'd come in and helped. But the air, the sort of aura of everything was listless, hopeless, resentful. Life for the men was about... Uh, they, they, they said they tended cattle. What that meant was they kind of got up when their wives got up. Uh, they sat, doing not much. Then they took their one or two cows to a patch of ground and sat there and watched the cows. And then they went to the pub and got very drunk and then came home late and usually wanted their wives to be available to them and beat them if they weren't. That was the life for the men. The women got up, tended the kids, they worked. Once they'd done their bit of garden, they then went to neighbouring land and worked through the rest of the day in the heat of the day with any children they had. Um, they were paid, not with money, but like with two yam or cassava, or something like that, which they then came back, and that was their food for their one meal that day to feed everybody. Because um, we said, well, you know, what about breakfast? No, we don't have breakfast or lunch. There's just this one meal in the evening, and then they go to bed hungry. Um, a lot of the women had small people with them, and the average age, is, you know, the poverty is such that marriage is it's quite a financial transaction. You might get, you know, a cow or half a cow, or whatever, or two chickens in return for your daughter. So daughters were married off at age 10 or so, often becoming mothers the minute they hit puberty. So we wouldn't have YFers going off to camp, because they'd all have babies. 
or third babies or fourth babies by the time they're 18. So the education is, is pretty minimal, but the, the boys were going to education if they could be paid for, but such was the poverty in this village that most of them couldn't, so that school building was relatively empty. And there was no sort of sense of there being much of a future, it was just survive. And we met uh, one lady called Teresa, who uh, I think I mentioned her when I came back. Uh, she said, please come see my little hut. And it was a very small area. It's, it's smaller than this worship space in which she and all her, I think, eight or nine children lived. Her husband had been killed 13 years before in the, the warfare. And what you've got to remember is that there's been an awful lot of um, strife and civil strife. Um, the Lord's Resistance Army came in and swept through. Don't remotely think they're a Christian. They're not. Um, and... Uh, co-opted children to fight um, places were burnt they didn't cooperate any crops available were taken so there's a continual cycle of, of warfare and poverty um, and her husband had been killed so she was surviving on kind of not much uh, but still had quite a lot of children because she was a widow and she had no man to protect her so she was available and drunk men would come by and uh, stay with her for a while until she was pregnant and then tootle off again. Um, so a very degrading life. Um, her eldest daughter, Anna, was, I think, 12 when we saw her and had just been allocated a little separate hut, um, which she shared with the chickens. And my thought was, how long will it be before she is living the lifestyle that her mother is living? And just that sense, and, and what they, when they said, okay, what, what would you hope for from meeting us? Oh, we want a hospital. And undoubtedly, they had to travel miles and miles to get any medical care. And so there was lots, you know, lots of children dying and hence having more children. Because, but there was, there was a, it was a kind of the impossible dream and you're going to give it to us. Um, and there wasn't any sense that there was anything they could do. When we asked, however, do, do any of you have some land? Like John said, oh, yeah, I've got a field. But it was, they, they didn't kind of think about how they could utilize that field. The next, sorry, I'm going on. <laughs> the a day after, we went to a place called Cogwin. And Cogwin, even as we were driving in, immediately had a sense of greater sort of bustle about it. Um, and we saw a, a sort of machine. And a lot of the women... Uh, spend hours every day uh, grinding, I uh, can't think what it is, one of the, is uh, cassava? Yeah, I think cassava, and grinding it, dried, dried root, which they grind into create a kind of flour, which is full of, of course, stone grit, because they stone against stone, so then it all has to be sifted. It takes hours every day, and that's what they make up into the food that they eat. Some women had clubbed together um, and cre uh, bought a little, you know, over the years, and bought a machine that did the grinding, which enabled them to be free to do other things. What had made the difference? This project had come in and said to them, it started in the church, and it's a project that uses the local networks that already exist. So it uses the church, and it coordinates with any local kind of council representatives if they're available. And just said, you matter to God. And God's actually endowed you with resources. 
And one of the things, particularly for the men folk, they say, well, we haven't got any resources. Yet you've got time. The women haven't got any time. But the men have got time. That time just sat in the field staring at a couple of cows, not eating much, and then going to drink. It was time that could be productive. And it was just waking people up to thinking, I've, I've got a role and I've got dignity because God has endowed me with that. I'm not dependent on a handout because God has given me something. And whereas in this first village, everyone was so kind of embedded in their personal trauma, they weren't really, yeah, they knew their neighbor was poor, but life was too hard to do anything about it. In the sense of of God's message coming through, it's all based around uh, teachings based on the Bible, so things like um, the creation narrative, the feeding of the 5,000, um, you know, building the tower and, uh, um, and you know, calculating your costs first, the tal- parable of the talents and basic key core values and saying, this is real, let's live it out. Um, it, people suddenly think, oh, well, if the two of us work together, you know, this band makes a beautiful sound because there's five of them and what they make together is perhaps more beautiful because God's working through it than what any one of them individually could do. And that's the message that was getting through to this, the community that we visited. Um, the women, this time, were on the ground, but they'd spread mats for them. <laughs> so they weren't in the dirt. And metaphorically, they weren't in the dirt as well. Uh, someone, a lady called Janet, uh, spoke. She showed us how she was grinding this root. And then that's how they used to do it. And now we've got this, uh, this little contraption to do it. Um, And she just talked about the way life had changed for her. And the men, whereas in the first place, when we asked questions of the women, the men were a bit like, the second time, they were listening because they have got the the message that, you know, in, in Christ there is no slave, no free, no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female. You are all one in Christ. What we celebrated this morning, communion, becomes a lived out reality and they just were, you know, thinking, oh, the, the, they are our equals. Now, culturally, there's still huge embedded messages that, you know, men do certain things and women do certain things and, 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 and about respecting and honour. And it has culturally been a bit one way, basically. And if you're a female, you respect a male and a male doesn't have to do it back. Um, that was changing. When we went to the third community, some of the women were on chairs, and when some stood to speak, you know, men sort of ushered them in and said, oh, here, here is Anna, she's going to speak. You know, she has an amazing story to tell. And in the uh, fourth place we went, where we, it was on a Sunday and we worshipped, everyone was on benches, everyone was standing, there was far more intermingling and just a sense that, yeah, we, we are one in Christ, we are together. So that, that message of, of unity in God's body and of value and preciousness was amazing to see because it was transformative. There was, um, sorry, the, the kind of material poverty was altered because people started working together, but also the spiritual poverty and hopelessness. They became aware, not of I have so little, but of God's great grace, God's mercy, the riches they have, we have in Christ. And again, that just transformed the way they went about life. 
And the thing that was lovely to see was people reaching out to their neighbours. So uh, there, uh, in um, the third place we went and saw, uh, Henri, uh, there was this, uh, HIV has ravaged communities as well, and Anna had been, uh, well, is still an HIV a widow. Her many of her children had died, not quite all, um, and uh, her husband had died, and she was in desperate poverty. And this message of hope and of support and help meant that for a start, she the rest of the village stopped saying, ooh, HIV, and actually included her. And that gave her hope because she'd felt hopeless. And she literally started cultivating the kind of space around her hut. So if, if this was her hut, perhaps she had as much space as, as where Mary's sitting. But she started cultivating it rather than sort of sitting there feeling remote and hopeless. I think she had... Uh, one child left and she co-opted that child to help um, I think someone uh, gave him a chicken from which they saved eggs and, and you know hatched them and then she realised that there were other HIV children, uh, uh, orphans and she started knowing what it was like she started having them to come and live in her little hut with her just to give them hope and respite and, and family. And just, you know, that the, the woman who was on her own with nothing became included and then became an embracer of the rest of the community. Um, right, that's Jane. Jane came and talked to us two years ago, was it now? I don't know. And you think, whoa, amazing. Far more amazing when we saw her on the Saturday and she lived that place where she is, is a house that Jane's family have built. And when I mean built, they, they have got the sand in their garden to make the bricks. They've had to buy cement. That's the thing you have to buy. You buy salt and cement, generally, because those are things that are not freely available. In the 90s, her sister was murdered in the, in, in the strife, and she took in her sister's children. No, her sister's husband was murdered. I'm so sorry. Her sister's husband was murdered. And she took in her sister and her children. In the noughties, her brother was murdered. And she took in her brother's children. And that act... And uh, she was working. She had a, a, a sort of admin job, so she's, she was more educated. And she worked her socks off to pay for them to have education. But also... They all have jobs around the house, and they have built that house. So that is her, Jane's in the pinky top. Uh, her sister is in the, the white, and that's one of her sister's children. Jane doesn't have any children. She's not married. But she, again, embraced others. Um, and one of the things they've also had to do is to forgive the murderers, because actually they're not a different country. They are living in the same Area. Certainly, this is on the edge of Entebbe, is it, or Soroti? Soroti. Um, Soroti is a big town, and people are alongside each other who have killed each other. And she said, you, you cannot go forward unless there is a point where you reconcile and forgive, because actually the burden on you is so huge that it's, it's the only way. She said, it, it is so not easy. I'm making it sound like, it. oh, yeah, yeah, forgive them in the Lord, it's fine. No, it's been a huge uh, thing to work through. 
but because of that, she's, you know, she's a beacon of hope. She's inspired her, her nieces and nephews to strive so that they too can work in the way that she's working. And she now works with the local churches. And she, you know, having lived through the need to reconcile, she can offer that message to others and say, yeah, villages that are against each other, you must reconcile in Christ to move forward because she's lived that message. John wants me to... Right, this woman is truly amazing. It sounds like she does a few things for a few churches. She now has an international ministry. She's studying for a master's in leadership, not because she needs a master's in leadership, but actually she's just a leader. She is a real leader amongst the church and national leaders speak to her. She is quite amazing. Um, I want to just show you these two folks which Sue mentioned about uh, young mums and how young they start. Uh, so women will have loads and loads of children. We met families with 18 kids and three adopted. Now, unfortunately, they think they got that from the Bible. Where it says, go forth and multiply, literally, they've taken that very seriously. And when you're, cha- when you're challenging them about birth control, it takes a bit of convincing. So that's quite something. This next young girl is 21, and she's on her third child. And the reason why that photograph is there, there's a Roman Catholic lady who uh, has started a maternity birthing unit. Now, Colin would, if he saw it, it is a hut, got some nice decor in it now but it's a mud hut the walls aren't painted there's no natural light or anything like that there's beds and since this lady was trained as a christian on basics of midwifery she hasn't lost in that community a single child quite staggering yeah Yeah, baby gear i mean quite mind-blowing okay this was one of the churches we went to And I looked at the band tonight, and I looked at all the gear they've got. Honestly, if you saw what they worship with, basically, it's a little wooden box with a few strings across it, and they normally sing a cappella with that. And for anybody who says, you know, to really be a live worship in church these days, you need this, you need that, you need the other. Blows you away, their worship. I'm so disappointed I couldn't download a video of them worshipping. And you talk about all-age worship. Well, they give no concessions to the kids. The kids are in throughout. Uh, Maulin and a chicken who sat at the front of them there. And uh, the kids are like this, worshipping away. It's just got that sense of vibrance. And again, so much to teach us. There were... What have we got next? Uh, so when I was in Malaysia, I met this guy, the bishop. And... Uh, One of the reasons, his name is Paul, he's a new bishop, and he got interested in me because he's got a new diocese, 10 years old, and he's desperately short of pastors. He's got 90 parishes and 30 clergy, and his diocesan secretary reminded of him that most of them were due to retire. So I'm trying to put him in touch with folk who can help him train pastors over there. Uh, Nothing like to the standard we do. But he came over to meet us in Malaysia, and I introduced him to Jane, Uganda, Uganda, sorry, to into Uganda. He came over to meet us from his diocese, which is on the Kenyan border, and he met the Tear Fund crew. And he's got major development needs, but they're going to help him develop a development program. That was just a meeting. I shouldn't have met this guy in Malaysia, but I did. And uh, it was just one of those God things. And I introduced him to these others, so I may be able to help him with the training of pastors. And this other guy uh, is a pe- the Pentecostals over there, not to be outdone, they have bishops too. 
and he's a Pentecostal bishop. And I introduced them as brothers who actually were able to have a conversation about how they can work together. Because the project of transformation comes through the Pentecostal church. Now, I'd hate you to think it was all work. I'm not sure how much you're going to be able to do, but we had a 24-hour safari. And we just we saw animals like this so up close. So just for your entertainment, and then I've got something to do, I'm going to show you a few nice pictures. I didn't quite get this close, but I had a good camera. Giraffe, that giraffe was a very long way away, and they'd moved them all in the national park. That was a warthog who was just alongside our van. Loads of deer, but my all-time love was this handsome beast. A hippo. And um, you, when you're in the national park, you see some of the natural beauty. You see what they're able to do. And you see, as you do in the project that you've contributed to, how transformation can really begin to happen. And folks, uh, I hope, you know, when John goes, he takes a good group with him. But one of the things to say is, don't go expecting to do something for them. When I met Bishop Paul, he basically looked at me and thought, I reckon I could get this lad to do something for me. He's not been on the project yet. That's not uncommon for people to ask you, for money or whatever. Once this project takes root, they just don't ask for money because they discover what they can do and how they can have a dignity in God. But frankly, they need our partnership, but not to do for them, but to enable them to do for themselves. It's really transformative. But the best thing, just the best thing, if you can, is to go and see it. Let's just be still for a moment. Lord, in Uganda, we saw something like the feeding of the 5,000 acted out daily. We saw limited resources expanded, so a little patch in front of the house became a field, and a field became employment for many, and employment for many meant that people could have education. We thank you for these gospel principles lived out. We thank you for people who didn't simply have their lives improved, but who came to know Jesus through this. And we pray, Lord, that it will encourage us to look imaginatively at the resources you've given to us in Aldridge and to see how we can better use them to serve your kingdom in this place. Help us to really understand what it is to be part of a worldwide church family. In Jesus' name, amen.